pediatric trauma. Anatomical, physiological, and physiological differences between children and adults have important implications for the initial assessment and management of pediatric trauma victims. Children have less fat, more, elasti more elastic connective tissue, and pliable skeleton protecting tightly packed abdominal and thoracic structures. The force of an impact is transmitted widely through a child's body, resulting in multi-system injuries in almost 50% of children with serious trauma. Their larger body surface area to body mass ratio predisposes them to larger heat and insensible fluid loss than adults, resulting in higher fluid and caloric requirements. Children have different physiological response to major trauma th than compared to adults, in that they contain near normal blood pressure even in the face of 25 to 30% blood volume loss. In these situations, subtle changes in the heart rate and ex ex extremity perfusion may, be, may signal impending cardiorespiratory failure and should not be overlooked. Children may not cope well emotionally in the aftermath of an accident. They need to be managed in a calm, child-friendly environment. The presence of a parent or guardian in the resuscitation room may help the trauma team by minimizing the injured child's fear and anxieties. There is evidence that 25% of children suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder after a motor vehicle collision. Primary survey. The primary survey is presented in a sequential fashion, but in reality, the trauma team directed by a team leader performs the components of the primary survey simultaneously so that the entire process takes only a few minutes. The goal of the primary survey is to find and relieve immediate life-threatening conditions. The primary survey starts at the injury scene and aims to ensure a patient's airway, adequate breathing, circulatory support, and to assess major neurologic disability. The primary survey includes frequent reassessment to confirm or exclude injuries that require immediate surgical intervention. Airway. The assessment of the airway simply involves determining the ability of air to pass unobstructed into the lungs. The airway can be obstructed anywhere between the lips and the carina by direct trauma, edema, secretions, blood, stomach contents, or, contents, or foreign bodies. If the level of consciousness is depressed, the child may not be able to maintain a patent airway and or be able to protect the lungs from aspiration of stomach contents because of the loss of gag reflex. The classic sign of upper airway partial obstruction is inspiratory strider. Respiratory effort with no air flow indicates complete airway obstruction. Breathing. Evaluate breathing to determine the child's ability to ventilate and oxygenate. Anticipate respiratory failure if any of the following signs are present. An increase in respiratory rate, particularly with signs of distress, such as increased respiratory effort, including nasal flaring, retraction, seesaw breathing, or grunting. An inadequate respiratory rate, effort, or chest excursion, vis-a-vis diminished breath sounds or gasping, especially if mental status is depressed. Cyanosis with abnormal breathing despite supplementary oxygen. Cervical spine injuries. While spinal cord injuries are rare in children, less than 2% of injured children, a missed injury may have devastating consequences for the child, not to mention medico-legal ramifications for the trauma team. All significantly injured children must be assumed to have a cervical spine injury until proven otherwise by objective clinical examination. Approximately 30 to 40% of children with a traumatic myelopathy have spinal cord injury without radiological abnormality. Disability. Perform a quick assessment of neurologic function at the end of the primary survey and repeat during the secondary survey to, uh, to monitor for changes in the child's neurologic status. Causes of decreased level of consciousness in injured children include traumatic brain injury, hypoxemia, and poor cerebral perfusion. The latter two can exacerbate traumatic brain injury and result in a secondary brain injury. Intrathoracic injuries. The vast majority of serious chest injuries in children are the result of blunt trauma. 
Most are the result of car and bicycle accidents. The presence of significant chest injury enhances the potential for multi-system trauma mortality by a factor of 10. Life-threatening thoracic injuries such as airway obstruction, tension hemothorax, massive hemothorax, or cardiac tamponade are identified and treated during the primary survey. The compliance of the child's rib cage allows significant injury to occur with few obvious external signs of trauma. Energy is transmitted to the thoracic contents and pulmonary contusions and hematomas are relatively more common, noted in more than 60% of children with thoracic injury. Because children have high oxygen con consumption and low functional residual capacity, pulmonary contusions can result in se severe hypoxemia, which may be refractory to oxygen therapy. Commotio cordis is a disorder described in the pediatric population that results from sudden impact to the anterior chest wall, such as baseball injury that causes cessation of normal cardiac function. The child may have an immediate dysrhythmia or ventricular fibrillation that is refractory to resuscitation efforts. Intra-abdominal injuries. Abdominal trauma is most common cause of unrecognized fatal injury in children. Blunt trauma related to motor vehicle collisions results in more than 50% of the abdominal injuries in children and is also the most lethal. Bicycle handlebars are a common cause of blunt abdominal trauma. Children have proportionally larger solid organs, less subcutaneous fat, and less protective abdominal musculature than adults. They suffer relatively more solid organ injury from both blunt and penetrating mechanisms. Approximately one-third of children with major trauma will have significant intraperitoneal injuries. Airway management, including C-spine stabilization. If the airway is obstructed, inspect the mouth for a foreign body and remove it. Do not perform a blind finger sweep, which may push it further into the airway. Suction to clear blood secretions are vomitous. Perform an airway opening maneuver, jaw thrust, or chin lift. If there's any possibility of C-spine injury, do not perform the head tilt maneuver. If the child is unconscious, an oral airway may be required to lift the soft palate away from the base of the tongue. Bear in mind that inserting an oral airway into a semi-conscious child's mouth may cause gagging and vomiting. Administer high-flow oxygen via a non-rebreathing mask with an oxygen reservoir. If the child is apneic or is making poor respiratory effort, assisted ventilation is required. When properly performed, bag valve mask ventilation for a short period of time is as effective as ventilation via endotracheal tube and may be safer. A controlled trial of bag valve mask versus endotracheal tube in a ventilation in an urban pre-hospital setting found no significant difference in survival or in the rate of achieving good neurological outcome between the BVM group and the ETT group. If an airway device has been placed prior to arrival in the trauma bay, the emergency department physician and or anesthesiologist should not assume that it is an appropriate device or that it has been correctly placed. The receiving team needs to be familiar with the airway devices used by the pre-hospital personnel as they may differ from those used in the hospital. Capnography is the gold standard to confirm ventilation in the lung. Capnography does not rule out mainstem bronchial intubation, however. Also, an endotracheal tube, which is dislodged just proximal to the vocal cords, could result in a waveform on the capnograph. Presume the child's C-spine is injured until proven otherwise, especially in a child with a head injury. Techniques of immobilizing C-spine include towel roll, cervical collar, spinal, spinal board, and tape. Manual inline stabilization of the cervical spine is essential for intubation. Management of breathing and ventilation and oxygenation. For non-intubated patients arriving at the emergency room, it is vital to assess, reassess, and keep reassessing airway breathing circulation for, adequ for adequacy until the patient is transferred to definitive care uh, place 
pediatric victims of polytrauma have near normal vital signs and even in the presence of significant blood loss and can deteriorate rapidly. These children should be monitored for, with extra vigilance during transport to the CT scanner, in the CT scanner, and in the emergency room. Patients who arrive in the ER intubated should be monitored for existing or developing complications such as barotrauma and endobronchial intubation, in addition to ensuring that their oxygenation and ventilation is adequate. If the child has confirmed or suspected head injury and if intracranial pressure is monitored, mild hyperventilation may be needed to, for refractory increases in intracranial pressure. Prophylactic hyperventilation is not recommended and it may be harmful by causing cerebrovasoconstriction and ischemia. Management of pain. Pain has historically been undertreated in patients presenting to the emergency department. The problem may even be greater in young preverbal injured children than in older, adult, older children. Many physicians fear that administering opioids will mask the symptoms of a progressing injury. A recent meta-analysis found that the administration of opioids did not result in significant increase in management errors in patients presenting to the ED with abdominal pain. If a regional anesthetic technique is not possible, a multimodal analgesic technique combining acetaminophen and NSAIDs reduces the dose of opioids required to treat the pain. In the child who is NPO, IV acetaminophen and IV ketolorac can be given IV patient-controlled anesthesia. Analgesia can be used in children above the age of five years old, and it allows the patient to titrate opioid boluses according to the pain that they are experiencing. Prevention of hypothermia. All victims of major trauma should be considered to be at risk for hypothermia. Children are more prone to develop hypothermia than adults. Hypothermia can lead to arrhythmias, coagulation, abnormalities, and acidosis. The later two, along with hypothermia, constitute the triade of death in trauma patients. An initial core temperature measurement, oral, rectal, or bladder, should be done as part of the primary survey.